So tonight again, I'd like to do some weaving, although I'm not weaving lists tonight. <laughs> oh, maybe I am starting with one list. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm not really going to dwell on it, just pre- present it. I'm kind of weaving some Dharma principles with the journey that I've been on, on this path. And kind of like how my own understanding has evolved since I've begun. And I, I began um, for the first couple of years in the 70s with, uh, with a couple, uh, two years of transcendental meditation. That's where I began. It was kind of like mostly what was available then. There wasn't a lot, a lot of others that was so obvious where I was living in um, North Carolina at the time. And, um, and so it was very good. It's a re- re- repetition of uh, words in the mind and mantra. And just doing that a couple times a day, 20 minutes a day, twice a day, and really helped my mind settle and started to get more steadiness. There really wasn't um, an introduction for me in terms of, the, of a worldview, kind of a shift of a worldview, as we have when we uh, open to the Buddha Dharma. And so a couple years after that, I moved to California, and I was introduced to someone who was teaching um, a class in Vipassana, Insight Meditation. And I was ready for something. I was ready for something else. And that's when everything really opened up for me, when I first heard the Dharma, when I first heard the Buddha Dharma. And... One of the most impactful teachings right from the beginning was hearing the teachings on the Four Noble Truths and how it was presented. And primarily, the first noble truth that there is suffering in this life, there is dukkha, there is that which is unsatisfactory. And And hearing that was so important for me because I never knew, I never fully understood that my suffering wasn't personal. I always imagined that it was my fault, like Catherine spoke about the other night, that there was something wrong with me that I felt pain and suffering in my my mind, in my heart. And to hear that there, there is a truth for all human beings, for all living beings, that there is suffering was, was profound as a beginning to let go of that personalization of the way that I was identifying with myself as wrong and that it was my fault. And I felt so isolated and alone in that pain because I never really talked to anybody about that pain back in those days. We didn't talk about it didn't know anybody else was having any kind of similar experience. Everybody was just kind of going along doing what they were doing. But to actually start to reflect on that and to talk about it and to contemplate it and talk to other people who are contemplating it, everything really started to shift and open up for me. And not only that first truth, but the second truth that there is actually a cause 
for that, for that suffering, for the way that that suffering takes hold in the mind, which is our uh, craving and attachment, the way we hold on to the things that we want or pushing away the things that we don't want. And the third noble truth, that there is actually a way out. There's a freedom, a freedom from that pain, a freedom from that suffering. And then the fourth fourth truth being the path or the way or the map that is being offered to us as that, we're, that we practice here. So that first noble truth, when I was reflecting on speaking this evening and reflecting on how that impacted me at that time in the very beginning of my practice, I could just feel so deeply how it just started to shift everything. And from the Sumyata... I'm saying that Shumyata, I'm not saying it right. What is it? The, the Nikaya, Shumyata Nikaya, Samyuta, Samyuta. I didn't write it down Samyuta Nikaya. In the way that it's ta- talked about, what is the noble truth of suffering? Suffering meaning dukkha. This word dukkha that we've been talking about. What is the noble truth of suffering? That birth is suffering. Aging is suffering. Sickness is suffering. Dissociation from what we love is suffering. Not getting what we want is suffering, is dukkha. It's unsatisfactory. And this, is, this is what we encounter right? when we come to a retreat. It's the very thing that we're not getting what we want. And um, uh, we, we dissociate from what we really love. And we feel that. We feel the tension of that. If we hold on to that, it creates dukkha. And the, the refrain in the teaching goes on when the Buddha says, the Buddha offered that teaching, and then he says, such was the vision, insight, wisdom, knowing, and light that arose in me about things not heard before. That, that wasn't really that, that, that kind of um, vision wasn't really presented so clearly at that time. And then he says that this must be fully understood, this, this dukkha must be fully understood. And the last part of that, the Buddha says, this has been fully understood. It has been for the Buddha. The Buddha woke up to that. So this is really where it started. I can, I can feel and sense how, how impactful that was when I started to reflect and contemplate on dukkha. And when I first started coming to retreats, I could see so clearly how, how judgmental I was. So many judgments. And even woke up to how much hate I had for myself. I didn't know that. You know, I didn't know that that was living in my mind, in my heart, you know, until I really sat down and started to look at my own mind and my own heart to see what was actually there. What was, what was I holding that was creating this pain, this dissatisfaction, this dukkha? And then hearing that other people were going through similar experiences and that something that we actually were sharing that it was a way that we, we understood each other in this pain, in this dukkha. 
And so even as I was practicing and there was more and more acceptance, I could let go a little bit more of the way, this, the way that I was thinking about myself and feeling about myself. It still was never enough. Right? It was never good enough. There still was more. I wasn't pure enough. I wasn't free enough. And I had very, very high standards for myself. And then there were these uh, Buddha images, you know, in the statues and the, you know, the Kuan Yin. It was like, well, I'm, I'm not like that, you know. And then, you know, you look at the images and they're, <laughs> there's like, there's no, it looks like the Buddha's completely still and not feeling anything at all. This, like, perfect equanimity, right? And somehow that that was the goal, or that was the ideal, where I was so quiet and so peaceful that my, my mind didn't move towards something or away from anything at all. This kind of perfect equanimity. And so anything I saw within my own mind, within my own experience, was never good enough. So there was always the judgment. It's very hard to let go of that expectation, of that standard, I really believed that I could arrive at a place where I was no longer feeling anything. I thought somehow that was what this was about. Somehow, that again, that steadiness, that there there, there wasn't supposed to be any feeling or, or emotional response to anything that was occurring. And that somehow I could bypass my whole emotional life because my emotional life was what was giving me a problem. It was the way I was feeling. That I was feeling at all was the problem, <laughs> right? And so, so in those days, I just kept trying to bypass all of my emotional life. And any time I would feel that something was wrong with me. It was this just my, my confused worldview. You know, this is, this is really how, how I was holding it. And it was really this sense that somehow I was supposed to transcend you know, we talk about, you know, the sky above, <laughs> opening to the sky above. I didn't know about opening to the ground below, you know, as Catherine's been saying. You know, it's, it's, I thought it was all about just <laughs> transcending into the space above and disappearing into that, some kind of dissolution of the self, dissolution of any way that I experienced myself. It was very confused. But somehow the teaching supported that at the time. You know, there was some way that they were very idealistic about the Buddha and enlightenment and awakening. And what was that, you know? And just trying to reach for that, trying to go for that without really, really understanding what it was about. But mostly it didn't work. You know, I, if it worked, maybe it you know, would have been fine, but I just kept hitting up against myself. And then I would sh- try to shut it off any kind of response or any kind of feeling or you know, shut it down, suppress it, try to move away from it. Basically split, <laughs> you know, split myself off so that there was a way I wasn't feeling anything, but yet I was in this transcendent place, you know. I even, I remember, it was still while I, you know, some, I was still um, 
was not only practi- a practitioner, but I was beginning to teach as well. I was starting to sit in the, in the, in the seat. And, and I remember um, giving this one talk called, I want to be Kuan Yin. You know, I like that. I want to be Kuan Yin, you know. And, and really, you know, talking about some of the process around this splitting and this, you know, trying to transcend and the spiritual bypassing and all of that, which I think is not actually that uncommon where we get these ideas about what this practice is really about. And slowly, slowly, I began to understand that I needed to bring more of these dissonant, dissociated parts back together into my awareness. I needed to start to, you know, this more of a unifying rather than separating and splitting off and cutting off, but somehow starting to embrace and include and join back together again, kind of like Humpty Dumpty, you know, Humpty Dumpty falls off the wall, you know, put back together again. So I really was getting this sense that as I opened to more and more of my experience, that my feelings, my, my emotional life, my, my personality even, was real. You know, it was something that was here, something that was present, something that I really needed to engage with, with my awareness, that it wasn't bad. It wasn't wrong. My experience wasn't bad. It, my experience wasn't wrong. It's not something that I needed to overcome. And I really started to understand that this was not necessarily just this path of transcendence, but there was also this other part of the descending. So what I call now the somatic descent, the descent into the body, descending into the earth body, descending into the humanity that I am. And it was a whole kind of uh, a shift in my practice that became so much more inclusive and more kind and more loving and more compassionate and more accepting. And my heart started to open in ways that I couldn't even fathom as I started to include myself, my whole self, You know, this whole idea of no self and not self and trying to get away from, you know, it's like bringing it all into my awareness now. Going so deeply, going deeply into myself as a person, this personhood that Catherine was speaking about rather than the selfhood, but this personhood that is walking on this earth, walking in her humanity this is from uh, Pir Viliat Khan, who is a Sufi from the Sufi order, a Sufi master. He says, Overcome any bitterness that may have come because you were not up to the magnitude of the pain that was entrusted to you. Like the mother of the world who carries the pain of the world in her heart, each one of us is part of her heart and therefore endowed with a certain measure of cosmic pain. You are sharing in the totality of that pain. You are called on to meet it with joy 
instead of self-pity. I lived so long with self-pity, thinking that something was wrong with me, and then hearing these kinds of teachings that, of course, I'm endowed with my own uh, cosmic pain, just as we all are, and to overcome the self-pity of that. So now I can feel the pain in the rejecting of those parts of myself. And that the and and the isolation and the aloneness that that actually reinforced. That I'm not engaging in those same kinds of habits and patterns that made me feel so alone in my pain that there was actually a place for my grief, a place for my fear, for my sorrow, for my pain. And and now it just seems so obvious to me. But it took so long to actually embrace my own humanity and to really understand that there was nothing wrong. This is from Courtney Walsh who wrote this poem. She says, Dear human, you've got it all wrong. You didn't come here to master unconditional love. This is where you came from and where you'll return. You came here to learn personal love, messy love, sweaty love, crazy love, broken love, whole love, infused with divinity. Live through the grace of stumbling, demonstrated through the beauty of messing up, often. You didn't come here to be perfect. You already are. You came here to be gorgeously human, flawed and fabulous, and rising again into remembering. But unconditional love? Stop telling that story. Love and truth doesn't need any adjectives. It doesn't require modifiers. It doesn't require the condition of perfection. It doesn't require the condition of perfection. It only asks you to show up and do your best that you stay present and feel full that you shine and fly and laugh and cry and hurt and heal and fall and get back up and play and work and live and die as you. It's a very different perspective than the one I had. You know, embracing all of the messiness That was never okay for me. Never okay for me. And this equanimity, you know, the way that I was understanding equanimity somehow is this kind of the absence of feeling or the absence of almost like the the cessation of experience itself. But now understanding that no matter how much I might wish for this dukkha, for this suffering to end, it will always be 
an intrinsic part of our existence. This is there is suffering, there is dukkha. It's an intrinsic part of our existence. And when we feel into this truth, it's a shared, it's where we come into a connection with each other, it's where we come into, into a solidarity with each other. Because there is no escape. All beings face potential for suffering and loss. We're all alike, no matter what the outer appearance looks like. And it's so easy to get caught up in the comparing. Well, and I've heard people say it in groups as well. Well, you know, when I looked around, it didn't look like they were having any pain or they were really cruising along, you know. It's just like that's the appearance of things. And then what our minds can start to do with that, the stories we can make up with that. It's very easy to get pulled in. Thomas Merton, you know, this really phenomenal American Trappist monk, mystic, who had a rather sudden death or early death, unfortunately, this is what he says, you know, for because he lived the life of interior solitude. And, and he said that, he says, do I, I'm not going to promise to cheer anybody up. <laughs> he, says, he says, when we attend to the life of interior solitude, there is the dis- disconcerting, disconcerting task of facing and accepting one's own absurdity the anguish of realizing that underneath the apparently logical pattern of a more or less well-organized and rational life, there lies an abyss of irrationality, confusion, pointlessness, and indeed apparent chaos. (laughs) This is what immediately impresses itself on one who has renounced diversion. And he says, it cannot be otherwise. For in renouncing diversion, one renounces the seemingly harmless pleasure of building a tight, self-contained illusion about oneself and about one's little world. The seemingly harmless pleasure of building a tight, self-contained illusion about oneself and about one's world. I love that. You know, when you're just starting to really go more deeply into the way things are, you know, really absurdity and, and, and the truth of our humanity that, yes, our heart does break. There is that which is hard to bear. Dukkha. There is dukkha. This is from David White, the wonderful English poet, who says, Heartbreak is something we hope we can avoid, something to guard against, a chasm to be carefully looked for and then walked around. But heartbreak may be the very essence of being human, 
of being on the journey from here to there and of coming to care deeply for what we find along the way. Just going to adjust this. And he goes on to say that anything you care about will break your heart. That's so different than how I understood the teachings. Anything you care about will will move out of your line of control and understanding at times. We can't control it. If we care about it. He says, maybe what, what would it be like to cultivate a robust vulnerability? To stop following a road where I won't have my heart broken. To stop following a road where I won't have my heart broken, which really we would need to control very carefully because it's pretty tough, especially these days, as we know more and more about what's happening in the world. How can we not have our heart broken? This robust vulnerability Vulnerability, you know, that wasn't something that I was practicing in the early years. I wanted to be strong and courageous and warrior-like and Kuan Yin-like, you know. Vulnerable, fragile, (laughs) really start to appreciate my true beingness. This word vulnerability comes from the Latin vulnerus, Vulnerous means wound. And, and when we contemplate that word, the vulnerable, the wound, it's the place where we open to the world. It's the place because we can open to the world. Whether we want it or not, this is how we're made. We are... We are fragile. We are open. We are impacted. We are moved by what happens. And in order not to be, we have to build up quite a lot of hard defenses to guard against these feelings so that we don't let it in. And so, so much of this practice is starting to loosen up those defenses by actually starting to feel and sense how those are living in our being, in our heart. Because we feel, we can feel the hardness, we can feel the contractedness, we can feel the way that we want to separate and push out. And that's painful. When we really start to bring our attention to it and our mindfulness to it, as I did, it's painful, and as I do, because I still do that, and it's painful. But now there's enough awareness of the actual pain that I am generating that I can have enough tools and skills to be able to start to soften 
and let go as we've been practicing here this week. It's not a weakness. Whether we like it or not, <laughs> this is how we're made up. This is, this is our, our, our mind-body-beingness. No matter how much I would like that to be different, this is the way it is. I, was, I had the good fortune of being able to go to Japan, uh, to Japan last year. Some Dharma friends were there who invited me to come, and I spent some time with them. And... Um, one of the things that I love so much about the Japanese culture was that there is this kind of this worldview of finding beauty in imperfection. It's like the imperfection is actually part of what one opens to. It's, it's what's beautiful when things aren't so perfect. For example, you may be aware of this um, um, skill that one develops. It's called a wabi-sabi and it's, a, it's, it's based on the belief that when something suffers damage and has a history, it becomes more beautiful. For example, the ceramics. So if a cup or a vase, something breaks, they actually take the crack and illuminate it with gold. It's like the crack becomes part of the beauty and the, the perfection of the imperfection. So filling that with gold, with light, to make it beautiful. And one of the um, things I noticed as I was walking around, that there, these, there would be these trees, the trees there are just cherished. And if a tree was getting old or the branches or something were starting to, uh, to need support, then they would take the bamboo, there's lots of bamboo around, cut bamboo, and make supports for the branches and make supports for the trees to help them be more upright. And it's such a lovely thing to see that, that deep care for something so fragile and maybe aging and old, dying nature and bringing that, that way of, of holding and loving and respecting and supporting. And you see that so much in that culture. That everything is included. Everything is brought into the whole. So much care. Brings me to Leonard Cohen. <laughs> and this is, you know, you almost can't give this talk without bringing Leonard Cohen. You know? His wonderful, his wonderful line, you know, in his song, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack, a crack in everything. If I had Catherine's voice, I could sing that. It would just be, <laughs> would be so beautiful, right? 
Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There's a crack, a crack in everything. So it's really starting to shift into the feeling of that, this how we can strive for these kind of perfection or ideas of perfection, really. That's all it is. There's really no perfection. It's just what we've learned somehow in these standards that we've set up for ourselves and then reach for it. And then that, that bar that we're reaching for keeps moving somehow. We think we're just reaching it and somehow it gets higher. And then we reach for it again and then it gets higher. And it somehow I can never reach it. So I'm just in this striving and, and the the pain of that, the tension of that, trying to, this imaginary ideal of what's possible. And so we start turning this all on its head. The third Zen patriarch from, who was third Zen patriarch in the seventh century, Zen master Zeng Sung. Apparently he only, there's only about um, maybe 15 stanzas of his teachings that are available still. And one line that he said was, true freedom is being without anxiety about non-perfection. To be without anxiety about non-perfection. That just speaks to me so much because there's that, I lived with so much sense of perfection and the anxiety about not having that or, or being able to achieve that. And to begin to feel the anxiety start to soften and let go even in the face of that so-called non-perfection which is only my own imagination. I've made it up because there isn't any. <laughs> there isn't any. Just to see how, how just making all of this up, it's my, it's my own worldview based on what I've learned or what I've associated with, so the conventional view for sure, the conventional, the mainstream view. We start to see through it. That's not real. It's okay. It's okay the way it is. Ajahn Chah, one of the great uh, Thai masters from our tradition, one of the teachings that I've loved so much, that's helped me so much, is really the teaching on it's already broken. He says... um, Somebody asked him, how can, how can I find right understanding? And he said, I can answer you simply by using this glass of water that I'm holding. It appears to us as clean and useful, something to drink from and keep for a long time. But right understanding is to see this as broken. It's a broken glass. This is actually plastic, but a broken glass, as if it was already shattered. Because sooner or later, it will be shattered. 
If you keep this understanding while you're using it, that all it is is a combination of elements which come together in this form and then break apart, then no matter what happens to the glass, you will have no problem. It's already broken. And it's really, Yanai was speaking to us last night, this beautiful teaching on impermanence. It's like with that view, when that view goes very deep, then when we see something, we see the past, present, future. We see that it's already shattered. That it doesn't have a permanent existence. It's already broken. When I got my car... uh, some years ago, used car, uh, one of the things that made me very happy was that it already had a dent in it. (laughs) (laughs) Now, usually you wouldn't want to get a car that had a dent in it. But for me, it was was already dented. (laughs) It was, you know, then I didn't have to worry about getting a dent. (laughs) Because when we get our new things... We can be so concerned about something happening to it. But for this car, it already had. And it's just, it's right on the driver's uh, side door. So every time I get in it, I see the tent. (laughs) It makes me so happy. (laughs) This is a shift in view, right? It's already broken. Can Can we begin to approach things in our life more in that way. And it doesn't have to be um, kind of despairing or, or, you know, pessimistic. It's just true. It's just what's true. Things are impermanent. And we can start to approach our experience, our life, other people's lives more and more in that way. And then we're not caught so much in the resistance and the aversion and the shutting down and the controlling and the manipulating and all the different kinds of strategies that we get into so that we don't have to feel. Maybe that heartbreak. that that is also part of the experience here. One of my favorite um, equanimity phrases these days is just to put my hand on my heart and just say, this is how my heart is right now. This is how my heart is right now. And I can just really let myself just feel what's here. This is how it is right now. It doesn't have to be different. It doesn't have to be otherwise. I don't have to do anything with it. I'm just here in a way of really holding with care and love just the way things are. This is equanimity. Equanimity isn't a particular kind of experience where nothing is happening, but it's an attitude of mind that can actually be with what's happening without resisting, without grasping, without holding, without manipulating, without controlling. This is equanimity. 
It's a radical acceptance and allowing of the way things are. And so now it's just, oh, this is, this is how my heart is right now. And such a tenderness, such a sweetness, really, in that. This um, modern-day woman mystic teacher, Maribai Starr, I love how she she talks about grief and loss in this way. She says, "Grief and loss, grief, grief and loss, save us from ourselves. For these fleeting moments, we have to let go into the truth of the way things are. And when we let go, it brings us into the humble membership in the family of things." We let go into the humble membership, into the family of things, where we belong. So it saves us from ourselves, so trying to create something, some kind of illusion or fantasy for ourselves. So those moments of grief, those moments of loss, when we can really open to it, we are part of the family the family of our, of, our, of our humanity together. So perhaps you can see how this is bringing us into more of a, this view brings us more into this path of wholeness where we're turning the mind to the truth of the way things actually are. And more and more, I sense the urgency of this for us. At this time in our history, where it is so much more obvious of the loss that's happening on our planet right now, and how the systems are breaking down the ways that we have controlled or thought we were in control. That we can't, the, the ecosystem, the, the, it, it's, it, it's, it's, it's out of whack, right? And so we are experiencing more and more of that grief or that sometimes despair, that, that even fear of, of, of what's happening. This loss of control in our systems right now, and so this practice is—I feel—I feel even more and more of a sense of urgency of taking this practice, take, taking hold of this practice, so that we actually have these uh, skills and these methods and these this understanding that we can actually bring to the immediacy of what's happening on our planet right now. I spend time in uh, Iceland. I've been going there and uh, been offering some retreats. Uh, there's a sangha, a small sangha there that's invited me. And so these last four or five years, I've been able to go there. And so I feel more and more of a connection what's ha- with, uh, with, that, with that tiny, tiny island. And not so long ago, there was a report in the New York Times um, about uh, the Iceland's uh, glaciers melting. 
Um, and um, I was very moved. I was very touched by this. And this, there's a prime minister. Her name is Katrin Jacobs' daughter. I can't totally say the Icelandic language, but she's a 43-year-old prime minister now. She started in 2017. And so this report was really about her and how she's responding to the, uh, to the glaciers melting there. And the glaciers cover 11% of Iceland. And they lost their first glacier. Their first glacier melted. And um, it was replaced by uh, a crater lake, which is now the highest lake in Iceland. Uh, this ice field uh, was a covered mountain since, you know, it's six square miles that melted. It's the first one. And um, because of this, because it's the first loss, the prime minister, along with a group of artists, scientists, and activists, made a pilgrimage to bid farewell to the glacier. Um, the name of the glacier in, in Iceland was a long, a long word, but it, it was okay. It kind of they called it okay because the word was too long to say. So it's 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 the ice the uh, glacier of okay. And so they made this pilgrimage to install a memorial because of the loss of this glacier. And, and this is what the memorial shield said. It said, OK is the first Icelandic glacier to lose its status as a glacier. In the next 200 years, all our glaciers are expected to follow the same path. This monument is to acknowledge that we know what is happening and what needs to be done. And only you will know if we did it. And she wrote this article, and it was put in the New York Times because she wanted, it was a plea to raising awareness. And she says, most of the Earth's nearly 200,000 glaciers will be in the history books just like okay, unless we do something about it now, unless we do something about it and we do something about it now. On Sunday, we join hands to prevent future farewells to all of the world's glaciers. And, and there's, I was so moved by this that a government would actually make a... Um, a ceremony and a display to bring the world's attention to this happening where, where it was put into an international newspaper so people could start to really feel and sense the urgency of what's happening. Because it's the, it's the glaciers that really provide the fresh water on this planet. And, and it's the, the, the water is, the fresh water is stored in the ice so that it very slowly melts. It's our storage, so that as it slowly melts, it starts to create riverlets and, um, and, and, and habitats for plants and for animals. It's, part, it's an integral part of our ecosystem. 
And this beautiful sense of feeling the grief, feeling the loss, and then having a plan, an action plan. Uh, Katrin laid out a whole action plan for how she wants to uh, uh, proceed. So to prevent more glaciers melting. It's, this is so inspiring because in a way, it's as, 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 uh, as, as this other um, nun, I uh, want to read something from her. It's, she says that prayer and action come together. It's not like we just sit and feel the loss and we feel the grief. But as we allow it in and the awareness of that, then we can move into action. And this is what Sister Joan uh, Chittister says. She's an American Benedictine nun and theologian. As we open, we become connected to everything, to everyone. This opening, as I open, as I open to my own humanity, I start to become connected to everything, to everyone. And we carry the whole world in our hearts like Huan Yin. The oppression of all peoples, the suffering of our friends, the burdens of our enemies, the raping of the earth, the hunger of the starving, the joyous expectation that every child has a right to. We start to feel it. We start to allow it to move within our own heart and mind. And then the zeal for justice for change, for action, begins to consume us. She says then action and prayer are one. They come together. This is something that I had no idea that it was actually through the embodiment, through the feeling, through the opening, through the allowing, that my heart would open to everything, everyone, just like Kuan Yin. That the Kuan Yin, the goddess of compassion, then begins to live in my own being. I am Kuan Yin. And no idea. Nobody could, nobody could have told me that 30 years ago. It's been a long, challenging, <laughs> hard journey. But into the pain, in through the pain, not away from it, not separating from it, not cutting off from it, but in and through, into the fire, into the fire. And then allowing all of that to be burned up so that I'm free. And when I'm free, that everything's here. Everything's here. And because I feel that and know that, then my heart is moved to make a difference to bring change, to bring transformation, to bring some action. So beautiful. It's such a beautiful transformation that begins to happen, that begins to shift.
So here we are. So I'll end there. We can sit for just a moment or two and take this in. Once again, from Pierre Villiat Khan, who says, overcome any bitterness that you may have, that you may have because you were not up to the magnitude of the pain that was entrusted to you. Like the mother of the world who carries the pain of the world in her heart, each one of us is part of her heart and therefore endowed with a certain measure of cosmic pain. You are sharing in the totality of that pain. You are called on to meet it with joy instead of self-pity. May all beings live with wisdom. May all beings live with compassion. May all beings find the way to an open heart that includes everything. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.